the client needs us to print out every file on this thumb drive. That was how the instruction began. I listened carefully. They, this thumb drive contains information that cont uh, about a foreign government. Um, and we need to have those files put in some three-ring binders after they're printed. And a table of contents would be good. We should make that so the client can locate the information. Uh, a master table of contents and a table of contents for each binder, for that matter, because there's going to be more than one binder. No problem, boss. If the client needs us to do that, I would be happy to take this assignment on. That was how a real-life conversation went down at work for me several years ago. Um, I, w I wasn't in a job that I loved. I wasn't in a job that felt particularly meaningful. Um, uh, but it was a job that paid the bills, uh, a job that was sometimes meaningful. So I opened the thumb drive and plugged it in, and I discovered folders, many folders, arranged in a nonlinear, crazy-making fashion. <laughs> and I found the files, some of them large, some of them small, and I printed them, and I, and I ran to retrieve them from the printer um, because I needed to catch any phone calls that were coming in. And I three-hole punched them, and a mess was made. Little three-hole punched little pieces of paper are hard to vacuum. Um, but I, I took those papers and I put them in binders and I created a table of contents. It was a painstaking process. It was a fairly simple process. I tried to finish it quickly. But let me tell you, it's truly amazing how much data can fit on a single thumb drive. I found folders within folders within folders, all of them containing files to print, files and folders for days, Soon I was ordering reams and reams of extra paper. I was killing forests just to print out the thumb drive. I was ordering three ring binders by the dozen. I was getting discounts because I was ordering so many. By the time I finished, we needed, and I'm not joking, a hand truck to deliver all of the files from the little thumb drive to the client. But right before I finished, one of the senior fellows came through and saw all the papers just everywhere and just kind of casually asked, hey, what's going on? What are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm just externalizing the, the little thumb drive for the client. Um, and he's like, oh, great. You know what? Why don't you just make an extra set of copies for us to keep on hand? <laughs> Later that day, I remember telling one of my friends, I feel like I'm living in a Dilbert cartoon. Um, in that moment, my work felt meaningless and very disconnected from God's plan for my life. I needed to know that God was in this. Um, even though I wasn't in the job I loved, even though I was doing work that seemed incredibly meaningless, I needed to know that he had not abandoned me or my situation, that I wasn't stuck somewhere. I also needed to know that God cared about my actual work, not just the scope of my life. I needed to know that my actual work mattered to him. Even if I couldn't see the point in what he was doing, I needed to know that my work of printing out data was work that mattered to God. In other words, I needed to know that I wasn't 
indeed in a Dilbert cartoon, but I was in the hands of a loving God. That it wasn't a meaningless throwaway part of my life, but was part of God's great plan for my life. And I needed to know that as I worked, I was the hands of a loving God. That it was actually his hands. Um, Not just making a client happy, but through Jesus, I needed to know that I was doing God's work and that I could trust him with that. Now, the work I do now, I love it a whole lot more than the work of printing files. Um, But I still need to know those truths. I need to know that I'm in the hands of a loving God in my work Um, and, and that I am God's loving hands at work. You might be in a job like the one I had a few years ago, full of work that wasn't meaningful to you and you couldn't see the connection between what you were doing and God's plan to renew all things. Or maybe you're in the flower of your career um, and you're loving every minute. You can't get enough. Whatever the case, in either case or anywhere in between, um, when Jesus says, follow me, he's promising to revolutionize your relationship to your work. This is a great hope if you are a Christian. And it's, if you're not a Christian, it's a great reason to consider Christianity because it will have a very positive and a very practical impact on, the, on your relationship with your work. Whether you're practicing law or practicing the violin, whether you're laying pipes or writing scripts, whether you're a consultant or a chiropractor or a community organizer, whether you're in medicine or meteorology, making films or measuring chemicals, teaching students or taking temperatures, checking in on clients, clocking in at Starbucks, whether you're starting a business or stopping a fight, translating the scriptures or interpreting the spreadsheets, whether you're beekeeping, bus driving, whether you're a student, a referee, a mother, or an engineer, through Jesus Christ, you are in the hands of a loving God at work, and you are the hands of a loving God at work. Toward the beginning of the book of Genesis, God promised something incredible to Abraham. He said, I will bless you, um, and I will make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What an incredible promise from God to man. Do you know the first person that started to fulfill that promise? Do you know what he did for a living? He wasn't a, he wasn't a prophet or, or a, a formal minister of some sort. And he wasn't someone that you would consider, oh, this is a person anointed by God in their work. He, he, was, he was a businessman to start in Potiphar's house, and then he was a government official. That was the first person that began to fulfill God's promise that I will bless you, and I will, make, I will use you to bless all the families of the earth. Um, Joseph needed God's grace for his public policy work. It was God's sacred calling on his life. Joseph passed on God's grace through his actual work, and God's hand was over his life as he worked. So I want to look at this in the life of Joseph. We're in a series called Dreamers in the Hands of a Loving God. It's about Joseph and his dad and the rest of us. And we're, we're, we're covering Joseph's life and looking at, him, looking at his life from every angle. And we're watching him move from self-absorption to great confidence in God. We've looked at all kinds of themes in his life, his family of origin and his sexuality. Uh, and today we're going to look at his work. He's going to look, we're going to look at how God was with him in his work. So point number one, you are in the hands of a loving God at work. No matter what your job is, even if you're preparing for work, you're in the hands of a loving God as you work. Um, 
And it's really important. This is point is very important, especially for those of you who feel like your work is meaningless or who you are not in the job you want. Maybe you're preparing for the job you want because you're in school. Or, or maybe you're in full-time therapy because you're, you're, preparing for, you're preparing to have the capacity to work. Um, or, or, or maybe you're just in a job that feels meaningless. It's dis, there's a big disconnect, and you don't bring your passion there. Um, and right now, you can't see the sweep of God's loving purposes for you when you're in that moment, when you're in that job that you don't like or you're not in the job that you want. So I want you specifically to be encouraged by how God was with Joseph in our passage today. Last we left off, Joseph was forgotten in Pharaoh's prison when he was about 28 years old. He was just left in prison, um, and he's been a slave or a prisoner for in, uh, in Egypt for 11 years already. Consider if that was your, that was your late, uh, late teens and your, all of your 20s. You were a prisoner um, for 13 years, from age 17 to age 30. He's, um, he's in this cycle of human trafficking, prison, work, then he goes back to prison. Um, so he's been a slave or a prisoner in Egypt for, for 11 years already. And then two years beyond that, he's, a, he's forgotten in a prison. Genesis 41, verse 1 says this. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Um, and uh, Pharaoh, just as a side note, was one of the most, if not the most, powerful men in the world. Okay? And he has a dream that is from God. And behold, there came up, verse 2, out of the Nile, seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, um, kind of like zombie cows, and um, stood by the other cows, forebodingly, on the other side, other bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And then he goes back. He has another dream. It's very similar. And this, this time it's about agriculture. It's about grain. You've got good grain. It's eaten, uh, seven good grain eaten up by seven heads of bad grain. Um, and uh, so verse 8, in the morning, his spirit was troubled, really shook him. And you know what this is like. You have a bad dream. You're like, whoa, I'm so glad that's not my real life. Um, but sometimes, in this case, you know, Pharaoh realized this has an impact on my real life. This, is, this hits very close to home, and he's not sure why. And all of his, when he goes to his, his people, he calls on his people, his best people. They can't help him. They can't interpret the dream. Um, this is remarkable timing. This is remarkable circumstances. The most powerful man in the world has a nightmare that has real-life implications for thousands of people, whether they live or die. Um, and for a short window of time, Pharaoh's heart, mind, and decisions are wide open to a messenger from God. And that window will close soon, but right now it's wide open from a messenger from God. He needs a messenger from God with a proven track record of offering precise, God-given interpretations of spiritual dreams. Okay? And he doesn't know it yet, but Pharaoh also is about to have a bumper crop of wheat that needs to be saved up for seven years. He's going to need also a capable manager who can be trusted with the work ahead. He needs someone with real experience, real leadership experience overseeing agricultural work in the fields, but also managing the, household, uh, the logistics of an Egyptian household. And it wouldn't hurt to have some experience in security, maybe someone who's overseen some prison operations too, because he's going to have to guard some real goods. Well, wouldn't you know it? 
someone who fit that exact description is locked up in his basement, ready for service, ready to be called up. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Ah, I remember my offenses today. Shucks, I've been a bad boy and a very naughty cupbearer. And so he finally reveals that there's someone that is locked up in the basement that he was supposed to tell Pharaoh about. Now he tells him about it because it's useful to him. Verse 12, a young Hebrew was there with us in prison, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving interpretation to each man according to his dream. Um, And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And just, it's funny to imagine this. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. Um, And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Okay, so what a moment this would have been for Joseph. One minute he's waiting in prison. The buzzing of the um, fluorescent lights just... You know, maybe he's a little sleepy looking at the wall. He's got plenty of time to wake up. Um, So one minute he's waiting in prison... And the next minute, he's looking into the desperate eyes of Pharaoh. And there's barely enough time for a shave in between the two. He woke up that day as a forgotten prisoner. But he will go to bed that night with a massive government initiative resting squarely on his shoulders. I'm not sure that Joseph felt ready for this moment. And maybe that's the spot you're in. You've been commissioned for a job, it excites you, it scares you, it's way bigger than you. You're responsible for something you care about and you're not sure you're ready for. Nevertheless, as Gandalf says to Frodo when he says he doesn't want the responsibility of the one ring, you have been chosen and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Or perhaps... You can relate more with Joseph's situation before he was plucked from prison and quickly shaved. You feel overqualified, way overqualified for your job. You have all this background, all this talent, all this experience, all this education, and you feel overlooked. You feel underchallenged. You're waiting, you're practicing, you want to be called up. No one's calling you up. Or perhaps you can relate with even an earlier part of Joseph's life. You don't have to look it up. I'm just going to read it from chapter 37. When Joseph was a teenager, he came to his brothers and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. Maybe you're in a season where the work that you love is being taken away from you for one reason or another. And this will happen to all of us eventually. Uh, Maybe you're in a season of loss. You've been stripped of your status. You've been stripped of relationships. You've been stripped of abilities that were once precious to you, that once you you highly identified with. Where are you at? Are, Are you wailing painfully because you've been stripped of the work that you love? Are you waiting patiently because you've not been given the work that you love? Or are you working fervently? If you're in Jesus Christ, no matter what stage you're in, you're in the hands of a loving God. It's part of a larger story, and he hasn't forgotten you. And you aren't, these are not wasted years. Even if the locusts eat your years, the Lord can restore all of them. That's a promise. You're in the loving hands. You're in the hands of a loving God as you work. But secondly, you are the hands of a loving God at work. That's the promise of Jesus. You are the hands of a loving God as you work. 
The hands of God are always working in the world. And they're always working in love. They're always working for the sake of others. They're always working for the life of the world. And I want us to see Joseph working as the hands of God, as the very hands of God in Egypt. The hands of God that will feed many hungry people. Pharaoh has given him a difficult assignment. Interpret a bizarre pair of dreams. Okay? So, a first, first thing to notice about God's hands, if you're God's hands, God's hands have divine power. Think about that. God's hands have divine power. They're God's hands, for goodness sakes. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And then verse 16, Joseph says to Pharaoh, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not in me. God will do it. Not me, God. This is immediate. This is instantaneous. Notice Joseph's great confidence in the power of God by the time he turns 30. Joseph isn't bringing his charisma to dream interpretation or his communication gifts to dream interpretation. He is bringing the very power of God in this moment. Um, and that he, he simply received it and he's passing it on for the sake of others. And when God gives you power, that's why he's doing it. He's giving it to you for the life of the world and for the sake of others. Not to take credit for it, but to give it. What a contrast this is to the self-absorbed young man that we saw in chapter 37, who was so eager to tell people about how amazing he was and how God revealed in a dream to him that you're going to bow down to me. Joseph is very clear that God provides information that Joseph cannot wing. He can't wing it. God provides that information. Um, God has precise information, precise interpretation of dreams in that time, in redemptive history. And Joseph was chosen to relay that information. Um, and I, lo I love how abrupt he is in verse 16. It's not me, it's God. Joseph has come to understand that God's grace can take you places that hustling can't. God's grace can take you places that hustling simply can't. Um, he can't will himself into a great dream interpretation. He has spent his 20s learning that he was not omnicompetent. He had to learn that the hard way. Um, he thought he was omnicompetent. He wasn't. He spent his 20s learning that willpower and charisma had profound limits in the world. Joseph had also learned that God intends to lift up and empower human labors with his power, with his very grace. It's not in me. It's God that will give the answer. One of the ways that, that God builds our confidence in his power is just through our own weaknesses. He calls us to do things that are bigger than us. And, um, and I don't mean bigger than us like, wow, I'm really going to have to run harder, work harder. But actually, there are things that you're weak in, but nevertheless you have to do. And God provides power in those cracks in your life. And there's no other way to find out that that's true than to experience it. Um, this is the way of Joseph. This was the way of Jesus. This is the way of the apostles. This is the way of the church. There are cracks in our abilities at our work. And through those cracks and weaknesses, God loves to show his power. Um, one of the ways that you can experience this in relationship to your own vocation and your own job is just to, to make a card. And at the top of the card, just put, it's not in me, God. It's not in me, God. Enlist all the things that need to be done in your work that you yourselves are not capable of. There's one way to look at it. It's, it's not in me, comma, God. It's a prayer. Just acknowledging your limits. 
Or another way to look at it is, it's not in me, dash, God. It's not in me, but God can do it. It's not in me, but if God wants it done, he'll do it in his own power. Recognize, as Joseph had, that you're not omnicompetent, but that God does want to use supernatural power to cause your work to heal the world and join Jesus' project of making all things new in his resurrection. Begin praying for that. Begin looking for that. Let him supply the wisdom, the power, the effectiveness, the fruitfulness through your work. God's hands have divine power for the sake of others. Another insight on God's hands, though, they're not just full of divine power. They also have human skill. We see this in Jesus' life. Jesus had human skill, and so do God's servants. Um, Verse 25 of Genesis 41. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven... Uh, good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. Verse 31, and the plenty will be unknown in the land of reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very, very severe. Let's appreciate just for a moment Joseph's acquired communication skills. Um, he's able to communicate what God has revealed without alienating his audience. And this was not always the case with Joseph. The number one rule of communication, know your audience. When Joseph started communicating, he didn't know his audience. Hey, brothers, for the second time, you're going to bow down to me. Um, Didn't know his audience, got stuffed in a pit. Um, (laughs) He was brash, and he put his whole, even his dad who favored him, he put him off. But here Joseph provides information in a very respectful and poised way. Unless um, he had grown in skill, he might have repeated the mistake. Hey, Pharaoh, well, I'm a dreamer too. Let me tell you about my dream first. And then we'll talk about maybe how your dream integrates with that. Um, uh, And what's additionally, I mean, very practically speaking, as Father Stephen Gauthier mentioned last week, he's speaking in a second language. And he's had 13 years to develop that language. And he's able to speak clearly before the leader of the nation that, uh, that spoke that language. Um, so he's got human skill. And his human skill leads him to take a calculated risk. That could have cost him his life. He moves beyond what Pharaoh has asked. Uh, and, and, and he gives information that could have him killed. Um, but the thing is, it's not about him anymore. Isn't that interesting? It's about all those people that will starve unless he steps out and takes a risk, unless he seizes the moment. Verse 33, he seizes the moment. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt, and uh, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. He's getting very real. He's talking about money. He's He's bringing it up. It's always awkward. It was awkward back then. It's awkward now. Okay? And so is power. Who's going, to get it? Who's going to be in charge? You need to put someone in charge, and that person needs to set aside some resources. Verse 35, let them gather up all the food, under, uh, food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are about to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And that's what Joseph has on his mind. Pharaoh, this is a warning sign. The alarm bell should be going off, Pharaoh. 
And maybe none of your wise men will tell you because they want you to be happy with them and they want to not die. But let me just say that unless you do something now, people are going to die. And if I have to die to give that message, I'll do it. None of your staff will cut. We'll make the cut. Verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse, and then skipping a verse, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now notice, do you see how Pharaoh notices divine power and human skill? It says, since God has shown you all this, he didn't show himself through his charisma, God has shown you all this, and there's none so wise and discerning as you are. Divine power and human skill go together like hand and glove. That's the way it's always meant to be. That was the way it was in Eden. Um, that's the way that, well, that's what Jesus restores, is, is the marriage of those two things. Um, we're tempted to separate these two things in our sin or in our blindness. If we, if we operate in divine power, we're tempted to take the credit for that. It's all me. Um, and, uh, and we're tempted to forget God. Um, but Joseph brings them together. Like Liam Neeson, you have certain skills. You do. You have certain skills. And they matter to God. He intends to use them and, and put, to put the world right. So don't lose heart as you're studying to gain those skills. And don't lose heart as you're practicing to master those skills. Don't, don't get discouraged in the process of God letting you develop human skill. Um, grow in your skill for the sake of others. Read books and master your craft. And become excellent in your work. Not to promote yourself, but because the world needs it. In Jesus Christ, you are in the hands of a loving God at work, but you are the hands of a loving God at work. Even if your work isn't personally meaningful for you, it might be worth spending time to reflect on what would happen if no one did your job. What would be the implications of no one doing your job? The best jobs in the world, the most crucial jobs in the world, a lot of people don't want to take. Because there's no platform, there's no glory. This, the pay isn't great. You are the hands of a loving God at work. But there's one more thing about those hands. It's not just divine power, and it's not just human skill. The hands of God bleed. Yeah. God's hands bleed profusely in love for the world. They are broken hands. They are crushed hands. They are many times arthritic hands. Blood becomes a symbol. Not that I love pain, but I love you. This is the blood is symbolizing I love you. I don't hate myself. I hate the problem. I hate the injustice. I hate the alienation. I hate death. I hate disorder. That's what I hate. That's why I bleed. So, so I'll give my body. I'll give my blood. Let's see this at work in Joseph's vocation. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of this seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, because it couldn't be measured. Um... So Joseph is commissioned by Pharaoh. It's time for him to get to work. He, he faces an incredible 
logistical challenge that will require his leadership. Verse 37 says that the land produced abundantly. Well, that's great, but that's a lot of grain to process. And he gathered up all the food, meaning he's responsible for a lot of food. And he put uh, the food in the cities from the fields around it. Every city in Egypt, every, every area of population where there's grain, Joseph is responsible for the gathering up of that grain. This is an agricultural challenge. If anyone's worked in agriculture, you could read this text and see that. It's an accounting challenge. Measuring the grain, the currency, the workers. This is a management challenge. There's lots of personnel involved. Training, recruiting, overseeing. This is a security challenge. Protecting against graft, protecting against theft. There are a hundred different pressure points. Don't see this as a pyramid with Joseph at the top. See this as an inverted pyramid with Joseph on the bottom, right? All the pressure's on him. Pharaoh put him in charge. That means that he's responsible. If this doesn't happen, guess who dies? If this doesn't happen, guess who's, guess who's taking the fall? Joseph is responsible. And think about this. If it doesn't happen, thousands of people die, and he cares about them. We see that. It's an inverted pyramid, and it's heavy pressure on Joseph. A former colleague of mine who um, worked, in, worked high up in the government said that every day that she went to work, she said, your hair was on fire from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed. And, you know, and a lot of times you're not going to bed. Um, and uh, essentially, when you're facing a, a crisis or a national problem or a national responsibility, it is both an honor and it is also more intense than you could ever imagine. And the more you grow into the work that you love, it often ends up looking like this. You often end up giving your best efforts and even getting scarred in the process of doing what you love. It's high pressure. It's high risk the further up you go. Verse 49, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. This must have been an incredible feeling, you know, an incredible sigh of relief. He takes time to have some kids. Uh, but the work's not finished. Um, verse 53, then the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread, because Joseph had solved the first problem. But there's a whole second problem. Think about that. There's a whole second half to Joseph's calling and vocation. There's the whole, the whole question of who gets to buy grain and when. How do we form the line? Um, maybe some of, some of the people from Apple can help him manage all the people coming for the grain. Um, there's, the, there's the problem of currency. Currency, is not, currency was not as easy to manage back then as it is now. And it still isn't easy. That's a problem. Taxation is a problem. Who gets paid? Who doesn't get paid? Who, who gets to buy? Who doesn't get to buy? That's a, a whole new set of problems. In verse 55, think about this communications problem. Okay, final problem we'll look at. Um, verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you do. Now, I don't know if any of you have, have had a job in communications, um, but it's always a challenge to communicate a message to a lot of people. But I want you to consider before the internet and before printing, how do you communicate with a whole nation? The whole nation came to him 
talking about how hungry they were, and they were supposed to listen to what he said. That's a lot of responsibility. But then they sold to the Egyptians, and, fair, and then the whole world came to, to uh, buy bread from Joseph. He's got to communicate with the whole world somehow. So an incredible responsibility. I can't imagine how exhausted this guy was. Think about how exhausted you would be after 14 years of the biggest challenge of your life. He probably lost some hair, maybe lost some hearing. Um, you know what, though? It was time for him. It was his hour. It was his hour of glory. It was his hour to pick up his cross and, fo- and, and follow God. He didn't know Jesus yet. But he would be telling us something about Jesus by the way he handled himself in these 14 years. This is the nature of our work when we follow Jesus. We pour ourselves out. My friends, we pour ourselves out. I want you to think about that. To solve actual problems for the sake of others. We don't bring our stardom to the, to, to the problem. We bring solutions to the problem. Those solutions make us bleed. Our hands will bleed as we pour ourselves out. Mothers know this. Maybe some of you are mothers. And you have, you have given your body. You have said, this is my body for your children. And it's in many ways your, your, your hour, your calling. And you know this. And you love your kids. And you would do it all over again. It's your calling and your honor to do so. Many other vocations know this as well. Jesus said, in his own, when he was talking about his own vocation in John 12, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm going to be glorified. This is my time. My time's coming. And then he says, right after that, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus bore much fruit by letting his hands bleed. This is God's way of vocation, my friends. When we follow Jesus, we pick up our cross in our vocation. It's, it's our finest hour, and it costs us the most. You know, along with many of you, I've had the privilege of walking with Krista Klumpner in the last year plus. Krista Klumpner um, is one of the leaders uh, working full-time, leading full-time at Emmaus Ministries. And Emmaus reaches out to men involved in survival prostitution on, uh, right here in Chicago. And along the way of working for this organization and leading this organization, um, Krista, the Lord gave Krista a vision for a way for the, for the men that Emmaus ministered to to know the great dignity of vocation and, and pouring themselves out and even making an income by providing a really needed service to a neighborhood. Um, and so he gave Krista this vision for like a justice engine of a thrift store, a thrift store that would be a thriving place in one of Chicago's neighborhoods that would really bless the neighborhood, but that at every level of the business, people who had uh, barriers to employment would be able to overcome those barriers um, by working for Emmaus Ministries. And also people who needed good clothes for their work be able to buy them um, at this thrift store. And uh, gave her, so he gave her a vision for Monarch Thrift Shop. Um, and uh, that vision has cost Krista. That vision has cost Krista. I was going through my emails. Um, I did a Gmail search and for the emails I got from Krista. And um, on January 23rd, I got an email from her. Thank you for your continued concern for me and prayers offered on behalf of Emmaus and me. We've found a space. She talked about the space, and it's 3,400 square feet, and it's great. And then got an email March 22nd. They just came back to us today. This is after lots of negotiation. 
with their final offer, and it's way too high. It's way too high for us to feel good about. And so it seems that door is now closed as well. Lots of closed doors for Krista. This vision has not come easy. We continue to search, she says. I do trust and believe that God has a place at just the right time. Undoubtedly thinking of all the men that she could see working for Monarch Thrift Shop. And on June 20th, I got an email, as some of you did too. I am filled with immense gratitude, Krista says, for all the prayer, support, and encouragement you have given me over the past 13 months. Um, as the plan for Monarch Thrift Shop has taken shape and the search for a location has taken me on a very wild ride. <laughs> and I'm excited to let you be among the first to hear that we signed our lease today. You know, I went to, we had a prayer service this week um, because Monarch Thrift Shop opened yesterday. Um, and so we had a prayer service. We had a prayer service midweek. And I was driving to the prayer service, and praise God, I was running into traffic because it's right in the, right in the heart of Logan Square. And it was hard to find parking because it's right, it's, there's so many people around. It's buzzing. When I left the prayer service, there was a woman longingly looking into the window, waiting for it to open. How was the first day, by the way? Krista has had to bleed for the life of the world. She has stayed up many, many late nights for all those men. She loves those men. She loves Jesus. And it's been her finest hour. It's been her hour. But it's also been a time where she's carried her cross. She's been the hands of God at her work. Um, the hands of God bleed to bring life to the world. You might be bleeding. Your hands and your body and your mind and your heart might be exhausted and maybe even broken by your work. Your, your best work may scar you for life. Jesus' best work scarred him for eternity. And right now, I want to pray for you as you seek to be the hands of God at work, even as you are in the hands of God in your life. Would you stand so that I may pray for you? Father, thank you for glorifying Jesus at just the right time. Thank you for glorifying Joseph at just the right time. I pray for all of those who feel overlooked right now in their work. I feel all of those who feel that dormant talents and abilities and education and even anointing is, is lying dormant. They feel like they're spinning their wheels and they're afraid they're going to be stuck there forever. I pray now, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would send an encouraging word to them through Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the endurance they need to continue studying, to continue laboring humbly. I pray that they would know and see that even though they can't see the whole picture of the whole scope of their life, let them see that they're in your loving hands. And I pray all, for all of those now who have been broken by their work and scarred by their work, who are exhausted, who are so tired from their work, I pray that you would encourage them, Lord. I pray that the anointing of Jesus would be on them. I pray, Lord, that you would unite them with the sufferings of Christ so that they will also taste and know his glory. And I want to pray, Lord, for any of those who have bodies that have been physically broken or souls that have been spiritually or psychologically broken. And I pray now, Lord, for any that would receive a healing today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister that healing to them in the name of Jesus. 
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you declare your glory and show forth your handiwork in the heavens and in the earth. Deliver us in our various occupations from the service of self alone, that we may do the work you give us to do in truth and beauty and for the common good, for the sake of him who came among us as one who serves, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.